Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm actually pretty good too. How often does that happen? Both of us good. <laughs> well, I think I always say good. No, that's not true. I actually, I do, is, I do mix it up. Definitely not true. Uh, I never know what I'm going to get back. We're we're in that we're in that uh, that kind of all too short middle ground where uh, I am wearing shorts, uh, not pajamas. For the record, as I've noted, I don't use wear pajamas. But the weather has gotten very nice and it's very sunny. And it's great until like in two weeks when it's going to be like 100 degrees out. So um, I'm going to enjoy it while it is. So the the three weeks of nice weather in uh, Taiwan. Yeah, it, I mean this. That's not true. It, it will it will last a little longer. It, the fall though is definitely tends to be better than the spring. But but it's definitely uh, it, it, shorts weather has arrived. I did turn my I had a fan on. I turned it off for this podcast. But um, people are sick of hearing of my sweating during the podcast tales from, from last summer. I'm sure. <laughs> When does when it it gets monsoony there, right? When does that happen? Um, so uh, yeah, I should probably like know where I just know know when it rains when it doesn't. So it, it's very rainy during the winter in general, um, and in and in the spring. But um, the really like crazy rains they're called plum rains happen in the in the early summer. Um, but they're, they're like not all day. They like it will be fine in the mor- it'll be really muggy and hot in the morning. They'll just get like torrential rainfall for like an hour in the afternoon and then it'll be an, a pleasant evening um but right now we're still we're in the um we're still in, we're still in the spring so um it, it actually hasn't rained much this year to be honest but you no one in california wants to hear about that no I, there's been a whole bunch of talk about how we're down to a year's worth of water which is kind of scary i, I mean it's just one of those assumptions you have that you turn on the tap and water comes out and i, I mean I've lived in Australia through serious droughts before, and you actually start to have that assumption challenged. It, it gets pretty terrifying. Well, does it? Yeah. I mean, Australia has like pretty extensive desalinization, doesn't doesn't it? Or or how do you handle water? It varies um, depending on the cities, but there've been there've been towns in Australia where they've had to ship in water. Like you turn on the tap, and nothing comes out. Um, it, yeah, well, it, it, that's basically happening. There was just a story this week where. Um, where uh, rice farmers are are being paid basically to not grow and to instead ship their water to LA, um, which is just has is like multiple levels of absurdity, including the fact that why are you growing rice in a drought in a drought yeah. filled state? But um, yeah, it's 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 serious and it's 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 fascinating. Uh, I mean, California is such a fascinating state in that. There's so much individual brilliance in so many like far flung fields, yet collectively, just it's 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 such a mess. I'm reminded of that every time my colleagues try and make it into the office and the Caltrain, which is basically servicing so many of the leading companies. Not just in Cal, these companies are like driving um like. Uh, a, a vast proportion of the Californian economy, and they're reliant on this antiquated train system. I mean, it's it's great that we even have one, but it runs over roads and it, it's like last week it shut down three times because of car accidents or whatever. It's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, San Francisco, the the center of the center of like human progress uh, or so many would like to think uh, has <laughs> three separate transportation, public transportation systems, uh, none of which connect and all of which are terrible. <laughs> it's it's that's amazing. Ac- that's a very accurate description. 
Well, I mean, it, it's it, this is interesting though. I mean, we're kind of off on a rattle here, but um, something that like there's aspects of it, like just the U.S. in general has always had a certain sort of um, wild west mentality, and certainly California and and even San Francisco. I mean, the entire reason the city came to be is you know the gold rush and mm-hmm. this idea of like just kind of like chaos in the pursuit of um opportunity whatever form that opportunity took i mean that's that's kind of the nature the nature of the place and it's it's interesting to think like could the sort of environment that would build up the sort of transportation infrastructure that san francisco and silicon valley and the east bay clearly needs uh also nurture the sort of environment that it is that's a really <laughs> that's a really interesting question I so so here's what I would say that if you take a look at um, where so where the tech the tech companies are located there it seems to be that a lot of where these technology hubs are occurring there's a, at least a correlation with Caltrain stations along the South Bay. Yeah, so, well, I, 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 well, the question is, what's the cause and effect there, though? Yeah, totally true. Though I would say that. Um, I would say that there are young companies, when there are young companies starting up, like proximity to the Caltrain now is becoming a big thing because, uh, I mean, a lot of young, a lot of young people and like this, this place runs on use, but a lot of young people don't want to live in the South Bay. They want to live up in the city. And if, unless you're a company that's big enough to um, have a shuttle, then if you're not near a Caltrain station, you basically have to ask your employees to drive down every day. And that's really not an appealing prospect, like owning a car and dealing with the traffic and congestion along the 101 and the 280 in the Bay Area in the middle of a boom is just not a pleasant thing to have to deal with. So I I, I do, I can't speak to it historically, but it, at least more recently, it feels like it's become a bigger thing. Yeah, well, the history is actually super interesting. I mean, because, um, you know, everyone calls it Silicon Valley, but I'm not sure how, like, how many people just say that and don't actually put two and two together, right? The 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 reason it's it's called Silicon Valley, I mean, first and foremost, the, you know, kind of the original industries there um, were built up around military contracting. Um, but then when, when it really expanded beyond that was into actually building silicon, building, building chips. And that's where the, the Valley, like they could build chip factories there because there was land, right? It used to, you know, the whole, you know, Steve Jobs talked about it being all orchards and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Like it, they built there because it, one, there's proximity to, uh, lots of important, uh, federal and military installations um, to obviously our, or the Stanford connection, which, mm-hmm. which by that time was already starting to really bear fruit. But then three um, there was land, there was space. And it's hard to think about now because land is at such a premium and it feels like there's so little space, but that's why it started in the Valley. And so for a very long time, San Francisco was like the bedroom was like off to the side. Like it was much more about being in Santa Clara, being in Mountain View, um, you know, Intel started in Mountain View, obviously moved to Santa Clara and Intel is really like it, to understand the, the history of the Valley and really quite frankly, to understand technology. I feel like young people today, um, man, I sound old saying wow. that, uh, but I feel like young people today really um, don't 
understand how important Intel is to the to the history of Silicon Valley um, in, in all kinds of respects. But in this respect, it's a geographic one. Like, um, you know, the the uh, what was what was the name of the I can't remember the name of the firm they they joined um, Noyce and Company. And then the, the the traders eight left that firm, founded Fairchild Fairchild Semiconductor, and then Intel, and that was all in Mountain View. And then they built the big headquarters of Santa Clara, and that's why everything grew up around there. It was growing up around Intel, and um, and it's only in the last really five to ten years that San Francisco has co- has come to the forefront. And a lot of that is about it's like the shift in technology has has been a shift in geography. And what I mean by that, it's moved everything's moved into the cloud. It's been the sort of more of app sort of thing. It's been the shift to consumer. And if you think about it, you know, the valley is always been more industrial, at least traditionally. And, and you know, the whole industry, the whole idea of having an industrial park, right? And tech for a long time was first and foremost about enterprise, about enterprise sales, selling to businesses or selling to other tech companies. And now over the last 10 years, a big thing about the iPhone has triggered, has made it much more of a consumer first market. And you're actually seeing that and people wind to be in San Francisco and live in San Francisco. And that actually lends itself to making better consumer products, arguably, because it's more it's more the way pe- people live. And it's just fascinating to think about how all these things interplay with each other and intertwine. And I, and I, I don't think it's it's a it's a coincidence that these shifts kind of happen happen in tandem. I totally agree. I, you're bringing to mind um, uh, research by Michael Porter. He's he's dug into a whole bunch of this stuff and he, he calls it cluster theory. And and there are base it basically talks about how um, how these how these hubs start to emerge and and oftentimes like we look back and it seems so obvious that it was going to happen. But often it's so hard to get this right, and it, it often happens by accident. Like someone starts up somewhere, it just so happens that Stanford's nearby, and then it starts pulling in more people, and before you know it, like it, it's Silicon Valley, and then everyone comes along and says, mm, "How can we recreate Silicon Valley?" Like it's it's something that can be replicated that easily. It's it's there. Are, there's this history to it that I agree. Not I don't. I mean I. Just listening to you talk about it, I feel that I don't understand it as well as I probably should. Yeah, the the um, well, I mean, the, the other thing that it's not just that, but it's also the where do most of the entrepreneurs come from? They 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 tend to come from previous companies, or if not the 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 entrepreneur, at least all of his like first hires, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe someone like Mark Zuckerberg will come from Harvard, then he's going to hire a bunch of people in the Valley. Well, if he wants to hire a bunch of people, if he wants to build a big you know, a, this massive infrastructure. Well, who, where's he going to hire from? Is he hire from Google? Where's Google? Google's in Mountain View. Mm-hmm. So where are Google's employees? They're all around Mountain View. So where is Facebook? It's in Menlo Park. It's like 20 miles up the road. Right. And, and, um, and so, it, so it's just interesting. And so, but it, obviously it's shifting. It's a, it's a really, and it's a very profound sort of shift. I remember I was talking to, um, uh, to to uh, someone who works at a tech publication, and they they were talking about how they had actually left for a while and came back, and it was just like it was so jarring to them the way the center of gravity had shifted from University Avenue on in Palo Alto, um, you know, to Soma up in the city, and uh, and it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out o- over time. 
Yeah, I mean your point around like you, you might start in one place, but you want to you want to start Facebook, you need engineers. It, it was interesting, a, a way of thinking about it that really um, affected my thinking. I got to see Reed Hoffman talk while I was um, a student at HBS, and he made this point that really stuck with me around like if you're interested in an area, it makes a lot of sense to go where the network is densest. You'll have um, You'll have all these serendipitous opportunities. The people you meet, um, the the types of people that you work beside will go on to form companies or get involved. And if it's not you, then something they do ends up being successful and they know you and then they drag you along. And, And that piece of advice really stuck with me. And it's one of these things that once these hubs start, it's very hard to, um, it's very hard to, uh, to to come along and challenge them just because they have this momentum of their own there. It's 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 like very hard to recreate to like create a dense network somewhere else like that. No, I, and I think this principle like extends broadly. It's not like it might be people, it might be businesses, but I also think it's also like individually like within within your brain. There's there's um this this Steve Jobs quote that I think is spot on and you know it, it says uh creativity is just connecting things when you ask mm. creative people how they did something they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it they just saw something mm. it seemed obvious to them after a while that's because they were able to connect experiences they've had and synthesize new things and um you know that's like Jobs was talking about kind of within the creative person's mind and I 100% believe that this is the case like the more the more experiences you have the more the more nodes you have like Mm. that's how you come up with new things is not by coming up with new things it's by creating an infinitely more number of pathways along which new things can be created if if Mm -hmm. that makes sense and um and that i think scales it scales to to people it scales to companies it scales to industries and uh and no I, i i i i completely agree I love it when you get these theories or ideas that are effectively nested. You know, it works the same way uh, within a brain as it does within a team, as it does within a company, as it does within a city or within a country. I, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. No, totally. And I, I think that's another interesting thing about California in, in general. And like what, like California has always. Um, and for all the complaints and well-founded complaints and concerns about about diversity and technology, there's something about being, I think, in California, one of the most diverse states in in the union, a state that has always um, assimilated, you know, a, a wide range of influence. And it really, California. What's interesting about California is there are other places in the United States that that have had immigrant influxes, but California kind of has a two-way influx or a three-way, I would say. And the th- so one is kind of just like other Americans that go to California, like go west, young man. Like and, and so you you get a lot of people from the Midwest or from you know that that want to get away, and it brings a, a definitely a different perspective than someone who's grown up there. Mm-hmm. Two, you get uh, the Latino influx, uh, you know. Primarily come up from Mexico, but you know it's a it's a big part of California, particularly in Southern California. And then three, you get the Asian influx coming across the ocean, right? And 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 a lot of them settle in California, and that's as far as they get. And and you kind of get this vortex of of outside perspectives and influence influences that yes, even if it's second or third generation, like you still have that aspect in you. And now you're creating all these unique nodes that don't exist other places, which create unique connections, which create unique ideas, which create unique, unique companies. 
Do, so do I count as the Asian influx? <laughs> and then you get the and then you get the randoms. <laughs> Category number four, which you failed to mention. No, it's true. I mean, I, I I think that's part of what I love living about here. And in terms of the the um ethnic diversity, it's huge. I think there's there's another lens on it which is um less forgiving, which is it seems to be that a lot of the that there is there is um superficial diversity inside a lot of the companies um, and a, a lot of the technology companies out here. But if there's a lack of diversity around anything, it's a lack of diversity around opportunity. Like it's, yes, there are these people that have come from all over these, all over the place. But the, the one thing that often ties them together is that they've had lots of opportunities um, all along their ride, whether it was in the Midwest whether it was in Asia or, or wherever it might have been, and that does create a kind of myopia. But in, I, I, I would, I would otherwise agree with your. I, comment. I, I agree and disagree. On one hand, um, yes, it's it's absolutely the case, and I'm very cognizant of of privilege and the fact that, um, for example, me being a relatively low class white person from the Midwest. Like there are, there's advantages and doors that are open and just the way I was raised with certain expectations and cultural mores, like made makes it easier for me to succeed in, in that environment. Um, on the, on the other hand, like, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. And it's something that I think um, it's something that I think is, is certainly worth, being concerned about particularly as kind of it becomes more San Francisco centric and it's really expensive. And, mm. and you know, that's something to be concerned about at the same time. Like, I don't know the, the, this, there's such a history of immigrants in particular um, starting companies and succeeding and, and doing, doing really interesting things. Like, I, I think this is why the, the, the topic is so, is so troubling. Um, and, I don't know. I actually, I do wonder if it's, if it's getting more, if it is becoming more to the forefront now for the reasons I just said, because there's something about, um, you know, when I went to business school at, at Kellogg in Chicago and Kellogg is most famous for its marketing um, and it has a huge feeder program kind of into the consumer packaged goods companies, um, which are mostly centered in Chicago. And, uh, and a real thing is that, CPG companies who do a lot of recruiting at Kellogg, they mainly want to hire Americans. And it's because their, their whole thing is building brands and building affinities. And they want that kind of cultural context. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, it's worth, I think it's absolutely worth considering right now in the Valley as, as, as companies are increasingly, um, consumer focused, that the sort of consumers that are the most valuable to advertisers, the sort of consumers that pay money um, tend to be wealthy, well-off consumers who are tend to be white, tend to have certain educational backgrounds. And so it's not just that, uh, you know, kind of bro culture is self-selecting into a certain kind of culture. It's almost like an, an economic factor is, 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 compelling the creation of these sort of companies that appeal to a certain uh demographic that has money and 
and so like is it's not like all this stuff is is all intertwined and connected in mm-hmm. some way. And whereas previously, when tech companies were more pure tech companies, it was really about the technology mm-hmm. and creating like something new. I mean, like you talk about Robert Noyce founding Intel, like the guy invented the transistor, right? I mean, he's not a best example because he's like a good old boy from like Illinois. Um, but uh, but I, I wonder if if the kind of diversity problem in tech has been exacerbated over the last five to 10 years. And just as the housing crisis has been exacerbated, just as the the scent, the nexus has moved up to San Francisco, like I wonder how much of this is actually really intertwined um, in a very difficult and hard to crack sort of way. That's fascinating. I, I So I'd always thought that the diversity problem had stemmed from uh, a, like it, it, it's if if there's a lack of diversity, it's a lack of diversity around opportunities. And so the people who've had lots of opportunities get more opportunities out here. And and again, the housing cost. It's it's almost like you have you had to have been lucky to get to the point where you can actually have a shot at making it in Silicon Valley. And then the types of the types of things that people focus on, like the natural inclination, is for them to focus on their own problems. So, so you hear about the, the the founding narrative of Twitter is like some guy who was going, I can't remember his name, but he was going through a divorce and he was sitting in his car thinking he was lonely. I remember it was in, I remember reading Nick Bilton's thing on it and it, he's like, oh I, man, I wish I could, I wish I could create something around that or, or Facebook. You, you, the founding narrative around that was like, um, it was <laughs> like, it was looking up uh, people's like rating people's well women's um, <laughs> yeah yeah hot or not basically yeah basically and 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 I'd always I'd always come at it from like the perspective of that there's a opportunity bias here and people naturally solve their own problems and so the problems that get solved are the problems of people who have lots of opportunity. What you're suggesting is that there's actually something more. Uh, insidious at work, which is that there's a, it's actually a business model thing that uh, the that that these types of people are actually the most profitable people to serve, and it's the reason that that companies hire folks that have had lots of opportunities is because they're the ones that are most able to identify with potential customers. I'm not even sure that insidious is is. Yeah, I guess insidious is the right word. Um, in that it's not like no one's doing it on purpose per se. I don't think anyone's sitting around and saying we need to hire, you know, a, you know, a bro, uh, because he will understand the target market better. It's but is that is that what's happening in Chicago with CPG and Kellogg and hiring Americans? Well, is it, is it the tech equivalent of that? Is I guess what I'm asking, or I, is is that what you think? I I, I wonder. I, I I and I think it's, you know, if you have ten companies um, who all on kind of a technical basis and skill basis ought to have an equivalent chance, and they're all consumer focused companies, um, the the company that's most likely to succeed is the one that that gets the most the highest value customers right whether they're paying or whether it's getting attention and so you can sell sell advertising to them well who if the highest value customers are tend to be white tend to be middle to upper class um tend to be males or tend to be females or whatever it might be um 
sadly mostly males, um, then who's most likely to win that category? It's probably going to be the people who look just like them. And then once they win, then that then the the causes of the causes of success get ascribed to it. So it's like, oh, Facebook has a hacker culture or Facebook is very aggressive or whatever it might be. Whereas when it might just be that Mark Zuckerberg was a super rich kid that went to, who went to Harvard and and that made him more likely to succeed. Like what, what were the actual success factors? Like what if there was an African-American female who had the exact same idea as Facebook and was even, maybe, you know, was just as good a programmer as Zuckerberg um, and she was at like Howard University or something. Like, um, does 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 like why does one succeed and not the other? And then once one succeeds, to what do we ascribe the success? And then that kind of becomes a part of the culture that this is important. You need to have this sort of thing. And 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 now there's an expectation that companies behave a certain way, that founders look a certain way. And now venture capitalists pattern match, and they say, "Oh, we want yeah. something that looks like this." And but the thing is, and the reason why insidious is exact right word is a venture capitalist job is to earn a return for his for mm-hmm. his LPs. Like that's exactly what he should be doing. And yes, it's mostly he. Yeah, that's kind of a scary thought. I'd I'd always, I mean, I'd always come at it from the perspective of. Um, it's the people who, uh, I mean, I come at it from a different angle. It's like the demand versus the supply side. I come at it from the perspective of the people who make it here. Right. The supply the, side. Right. And, and you're coming at it from the demand side, which I, I had never considered. And it's, I mean, I remember, I remember standing up in front of a group of people once talking about, um, how awesome the, I thought the Khan Academy was that this notion that we create this, well, that, that, that Silicon Valley is creating this amazing content and they're making it available for free and how it has the potential to revolutionize the world's education. You know, you get the best content, you share it around the world. And, you know, I've, I had the opportunity to visit, to visit Greece during the um, opening stages of the crises over there and I met with a bunch of entrepreneurs and some of them had actually pulled their kids out of Greek schools and were homeschooling them. And I, I was telling this story and a gentleman stood up um, who'd, who'd previously worked in the Chicago local government and he's like, look, not to put a dampener on what you're saying because I think it's fantastic, but you guys live off in your little bubble and you really don't understand the nature of the world that the rest of us live in. Like you can create the best content in the world, but if a kid is not living in a safe home, if it's unsafe for him to walk to school, if he's uh, not getting fed properly, if his parents can't even buy him a computer, then what are all these, like all this fantastic stuff that the Khan Academy is doing, it's not going to do squat. And you think about it, it's like, yeah, I mean, Sal Khan was solving I think it's a fantastic problem that he's solving for, but when you only get exposed to a limited set of problems, they're the types of problems you solve. And, and I mean, I've never been in a situation, like I have to listen to someone who's worked in Chicago to get a sense of what that's like. I recognize I've been lucky. Uh, this other angle though, this demand side angle is, I, I'd always just described it to a supply side problem. And I do think that's part of it, but the demand side thing is absolutely fascinating. Well, um, first off, one, you, you told this story in the podcast before, so I have to acknowledge that, or else we're going to get like 10 emails. Oh, sorry. Um, Did I? 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, and two, by the way, you can control podcast skipping whatever on a pebble. Um, I also got like 47 emails on that. So now that I have that out of the way, um, no, it, well, the other, this is why, um, this is why questions of equality and diversity are, um, you know, in some respects, I think, uh, liberals almost do it a disservice in their, um, in almost like the, the, the proposals are, are cheap almost. Right. It's easy to push for, you know, hiring a certain quota or, or, or that sort of stuff. But when actually, when, when you're dealing with deep, deep mm. systematic issues, like the fact that uh, the average wealth of a white household versus a black house household is differs by like the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, mm. like, and and then you trace that back. Like you, you know, we talk about tracing the history of Silicon Valley, trace back the wealth difference between African Americans and and white people in America. And <laughs> there's only one place to go to, and it's called slavery. And like and and then and then in I and I don't like I don't know. I mean, there's like this is this is the reason why um the discussion around things like reparations and stuff like that, like deserve a, a fuller hearing than they get. People just kind of dismiss it out of hand. Like that's in the past or whatever, but it's not in the past. You know, that William Faulkner, the past isn't past you know, or whatever it is. It's not even past or whatever. The past isn't dead. It's not even past. Like that's, it's, it's such a profound statement because it's so, it's so true. And, um, and yeah, and it, it manifests in itself in, in all kinds of stuff. Like you said, the school stuff. Like if you don't, if you're not in an environment where you're going to get a good education, like what, like what then? I mean, I this like I am by no means comparing myself to this, not in the slightest, one hundred percent. So like, this is a massive, massive caveat. Um, I was fortunate to grow up in a household that valued education, and I was did my work and stuff like that. Um, just the very small taste that I kind of have of this is, um, I had I did very well on on my standardized tests in high school and I had good grades and and I I, I sh- looking back I should have gone to um like an Ivy League school or Stanford or something and and had I gone there even though my family wasn't particularly well off like I would have they would have paid for me right that's what they do if they find a student you know that has that's potential they will like they'll make sure that fi- financial considerations aren't 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 an issue Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually want to go to MIT. Uh, I was, I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. Um, it's fascinating. I, 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 we've talked about this between us. I can't remember if we talked mm-hmm. about it on the podcast. Um, but it's, it's it like happened. a fascinating, what, what if, where I might've gone, but to go to MIT, you had to take the SAT two, which is like a, a subject specific, you had to choose like two subjects and take extra tests on it. Um, and so the day that I was supposed to take the tests, um, we were like moving house and like no one, no one thought of it, which everyone forgot. Like I had registered and stuff, but like it wasn't like no one really was paying attention to it. We were all worried about the move. And, um, and so I didn't take the test. And so they didn't look at my application and, um, and I, I and I didn't go and I, and I didn't even apply anywhere else. Like, it, it, like, and the reason I didn't was, um, like my, it just wasn't even in my parents kind of they didn't even think about it. Like that wasn't going to Harvard or going to MIT or whatever. wasn't even in their consideration set. Cause that wasn't mm. a part of the world. Both my parents grew up very poor. Um, my dad in the South, my, my mom in, in California actually. Um, and, 
And I went to a private Christian school. Was, the guidance college was like the pastor's daughter or something ridiculous like that. And she, like, whatever, like they, they're pushing, they're shuttling everyone off to like Bible college. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it's like, and obviously, and so I went to Wisconsin which is again, great school, but I, I took out a bunch of student loans to pay for it. Like when I could have gone to Harvard for free, like, I mean, presuming I'd gotten in and all that sort of stuff. But like the, the, the point is like the reason I didn't was, was not because of a lack of effort or lack of lack of knowledge. It was, it just was, didn't, it wasn't even in my family's vocabulary or like realm of yeah. knowledge to even think you, about it. You had no role models. Like you, you had no, like the thought, it just, it the didn't thought didn't even occur to me. Occur. Yeah. Like, and so like, and so again, I was already very fortunate because, you know, I mean, I, like I grew up highly valued education. I wouldn't have to worry about getting shot on the way to school or, or, you know, gangs or drugs or any of that. I mean, so I, I've only experienced a very small sliver, but you, 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 you think that large where like, you know, if your parents are just concerned about like getting to the next week or the next month mm-hmm. or making sure you're safe, like, and then when I say, oh, well, you just need to try harder. Like, it's insulting. Again, like, I, I don't know what the solution is, but um, geez, like, there's a whole lot more, I think, certainly empathy needed. Um, and also, I think a lot more humility um, in just appreciating that, like, yeah, I, I lots of people are super good intentioned. But if you don't like at a very profound level, like understand, like it's sometimes it's, it, that's why it's so easy to do more harm than good. You see these flare ups online around, around women or, or around, around people of color. And, and a lot of it, I think comes from a, a, an, an intellectual desire to help without the sort of like visceral understanding and, and empathy and mercy that like, that is kind of like step one, um, and, and it's it's hard to get that because just in the same way that folks who haven't like like what you were describing, you didn't know that this was even an option. The people who were trying to help as well don't even realize the circumstance. They, they have no basis of understanding how different that person's worldview is to their own. Um, in the same way that it took that guy from Chicago to stand up and say. Hey, hey, listen, guy, like, love your good intentions, but like, he's a bit of a reality check. If he hadn't said that and he hadn't experienced it and been able to communicate it to me and I hadn't been in that room to listen, I'd have gone on thinking my merry little world that, yeah, the Khan Academy is the way to solve all the problems in the world's education. And you hear stories like that and you realize it's not, but it's, it's, it's hard to, it's, it's, you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. No, that's, that's. That's the biggest thing. I mean, um, <laughs> for all his, well, yeah, we won't get into politics, but I, I think it was with Donald, Donald Rumsfeld, right? I think we might, we might have, we might be repeating ourselves again here. I think we might have talked about this, mm. but the, you know, you know what you know, you know what you don't know, you don't know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know. And the, the last one is like the most dangerous one. Like, right. um, yeah. So anyhow, it's funny. We 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 um we we were going to uh, uh purposely avoid uh. You know, yes, we, we get sick to talk about Apple too, believe it or not. Um, but we were talking about like, well, I got into a bit of um a discussion last mm. week about like the value of the MBA. Um and uh just we get questions about career stuff in general. And it's funny, it's like 
<laughs> I mean, give a guy a podcast becomes an expert in anything, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because because the reality is like, I mean, it's been a very, you know, I, I, you, it's very difficult to look back at my wife and say like, oh, you know, there's, there's some sort of like planned, planned thing here or that I'm in any way justified to give advice. And, and I think that, you know, it comes back to all sorts of stuff. Like any sort of advice you give or any sort of guidance you, you, you have is, mm. is irretrievably intertwined with your own personal experiences, your own right. personal background, and is by definition, like not perfectly applicable to anyone else in the world. Like not even my brother, right? Even though we were raised in the same circumstance with my sister, right? Um, and and so that 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 makes it that makes it difficult. And I think, um, um, you know, what if anything, like the one piece of advice I have for anyone is like, don't take advice too seriously. Like this, this is like a, a mistake that I've made lots of times. Like where where you know the the if you go with the crowd. Like you're you're by definition resigning yourself to a mediocre experience, right? Because yeah. it, it's it's the it's the the law it's the law of averages. Like you're gonna get an average an average sort of experience or average sort of advice or average sort of right. sort of outcome. So so and I think one of the things that we've tried to do is avoid averages and dig into specifics. And I I would say that there are forms of good advice and forms of bad advice, right? Like if if you're getting someone telling you just go do this. Um, particularly if they haven't asked you lots of questions about, about you first, then it's probably bad advice. But if the advice is based around how to think about a problem, then it starts to become more helpful. Like if it, if it's, if it's process style advice, then I think that's helpful. But coming back to, um, what you said about, I'm curious how, how to think about, think how to think, how to think about it. I mean, that's what, um, we, we've spent tons of time talking about me and my writing, but mm. only one of us has published a book. Um, like, wasn't that, that was kind of the premise of what you were trying to do in, in, in how should you live, live your life? Correct. Yeah. So how will you measure your life? How you measure your life? Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 totally cool. Um, that, that was the book that I, I worked on when I finished school, um, uh, worked on with Clay Christensen and Karen Dillon. And I, I guess part of the, and there are there are many reasons why I was interested in this, none more so than I felt that I hadn't necessarily figured it out myself and the opportunity to dive into it, like not really having any answers and to think about these questions deeply for a couple of years seemed really appealing, as did the opportunity of getting to work with Clay and Karen too, which so, was so, really awesome. So what, what was like, what was the premise of the book? I think you mentioned before, but it's basically like Professor Christian taking the way that he thinks about business and, and applying it to to your to your own life or something like that yeah so so the basis is it, so his class is called building and sustaining a successful enterprise and it's one of the most popular classes at HBS HBS and, being Harvard Business School thank you um sorry not to not to go all acronymy on people and yeah it just rolls off well, the tongue I know like, we, 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 we just know. spent like 40 minutes talking about people that you know yeah. aren't even aware of worlds outside themselves so geez, yeah thank they, you that was that was an appropriate slap I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a slap. No, no wonder well, I get such I a bad a reputation from no, this podcast. I, I mean, geez. No, it was, it was, it was, it was a needed, like, yes, it wasn't a slap, but I needed a slap. How about that? <laughs> anyway, his class is one of the most popular ones at the school. And, and the basis of it is a little bit different to a lot of the other classes. It revolves around business theory. 
So a lot of what gets taught at HBS is case-based. They put you in the shoes of the protagonist and ask you to make decisions. And obviously there's where it's finance, there's like finance theory taught, but this is, this is focused primarily on the theory. So you learn a theory and then you apply it to the case and the case is all about discussing it in the context of the theory. So disruption is obviously very popular, um, but it, it's, it's designed to equip students to go out into the world and be effective general managers. So uh, it, it goes from disruption and then you learn how a culture forms in an organization and what makes it effective all the way through to how to motivate employees. And you learn about all these theories. What happens on the last day of class, though, is a little bit different. Um, Clay takes all the theories we've studied, writes them up on the board and then writes three questions beside them. Um, the first one is, how can I find happiness in my relationships? The second one is, how can I find happiness in my career? And the third one, uh, which sounds a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's actually deadly serious, is, uh, how can I stay out of jail? Now, it turns out that Jeff Skilling from Enron was in class with Clay when he was a student at um, Harvard Business School. Um, and was all accounts a pretty good guy. And something sent him off on the wrong direction. And so... The class is all about taking the theory, the causal theory, and applying it to answering these questions. And so, if you have an ins- if you have insight into how a culture forms inside a company, um, you can. It's it's like we said earlier. It's nested. You can take it down. The same process actually works inside a team. Uh, it works inside a business unit. But you can take it all the way down to it works inside a family. So. If you want to think about establishing a culture for a family, like this is the way in which a culture works. And the same thing with motivation. Like if this is, if this is what causes motivation, like this is what causes employees to be motivated, you can take the research and you can actually apply it to yourself and understand the way in which you can find something that you really enjoy doing. And that was, and then the idea of the book was to take that class and put it in a book. Exactly. Um, and so the, the class that I took with Clay that year, he had cancer at the time. It was pretty emotionally charged. No one knew whether he was going to, no one knew whether it was going to be the last one that he was going to teach. His family was there. Um, there wasn't a seat in the house. In fact, it was standing room only. Um, you know, it was very, it was very emotional. And it, it deeply affected me and deeply affected how I thought about the world. Now, independent of all of that, Clay and I had been speaking about potentially staying on and working, but we didn't really have a project. And I think I was going to do, um, I think I was going to do something much more um, marketing related, like traditional business type stuff. But I found myself having these conversations with people, my friends uh, at school, like you get to the end of, uh, you get to the end of business school and you start thinking, okay, gosh, like this is all coming to an end. This has been a lot of fun, but like now what? And I found myself calling on the theories a lot in having these conversations. And anyway, I started, I started work with Clay and um, hit it, hit it, um, actually written something for the HBR, a short version of the article with Karen um, detailing the detailing the thinking behind the book, or detailing the thinking behind the class. Um, but one week after uh, I started working with him, he had a stroke, and everything kind of got put on hold, and we weren't sure whether he was going to be okay. Fortunately, he was. But um, one of the other good things that came out of that was it gave me lots of time to think about, you know, like what do I like? What what should we use this time for? Do we really want to get into this business marketing? 
um, topic or do we want to actually focus a little bit on this? And we talked about it a little bit when he came back and ultimately I was like, Clay, look, I, I really think there's a deeper treatment needed than just an article and there's a pretty broad audience. Why don't we turn it into a book? And he smiled and I, I don't know, I'm pretty sure the thought had crossed his mind a few times before and he's like, that's a great idea, let's do it. And away we went. So uh, so you're the one then. What's your grand advice for everyone to take away from this podcast to know that how they should measure their life and, well, and make I decisions? Think, I think the grand advice... Other, 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 than, other than buy the book under copyright so that you get your royalty. All right, that... Is that a is that a slap? <laughs> no, that's no. I think that's what I think that's, that's where that's I earn, a, that's where I earned the 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 return slap. Yeah, the the snide the snide <laughs> knife between the ribs. I'm just I'm gonna remove that before I answer the question. <laughs> um, I I would say that one of the things I learned from Clay, lots of people went up to ask him for advice, myself included, and one of the things that I really appreciated about him. And that I think is the right way to approach is that there's no right answer. But instead, what's really important is to ask the right question and then have a, a, a powerful way of thinking about breaking it down, like a framework for approaching it. And so I, I whenever whenever anyone asks me what what, like, for example, a lot of these things are for me, it's like, okay, let's make sh- I'm happy to answer the question, but let's make sure we're asking the right question because what's right for me is unlikely to be right for you. And so it's a, it's a case of like finding the right questions to ask and, and then having a mechanism to think through them. And that's kind of what we did with the book. It's like, okay, these are three pretty important questions. And then let, let's go through this causal research. And, and if, if, the research is right. It doesn't just apply at a, a company level. It like it has relevance at a personal level as well. And we'll use these lenses like theories to help answer the question. We'll explain them. We might illustrate them in terms of what's happened in um, one of our lives. But really, it's for you to think through as opposed to for us to give you answers. And I, I would caution anyone when they're getting advice, if they're hearing lots of people giving them the answers, then mm, like just just okay, think very critically about what you're hearing because it's rare that there's one size fits all advice. No, I think that's, that's, that's exactly it. My, my favorite way to think about life and career is um, like the worst, the worst possible thing that the, the problem with having like a five-year plan or a 10-year plan mm-hmm. is that you succeed and then you, you, you look up and you realize you're way off where you actually should be because like the world has changed under your feet. You're so dedicated mm-hmm. to, to doing something or following through in something that, that you miss, you miss what's happening. And, um, you know, it's the same, it, it, that's like the forward looking version of the getting answers for everyone else. Like they're coming at it from their own experience, their own trajectory, mm-hmm. their own point of view, their own experiences. And if you do what they say, like, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean it's right for you and you might end up in, in the wrong place. Like, um, you know, like people think that failure in your career is, is like abject failure, like going to jail. Um, but often the more, the bigger failures are the things you didn't do. It's, it's the missed opportunities. And, and what's probably the most, if if we if we if any of us ever got a chance to look back at our lives, it's the missed opportunities that we didn't even know we missed, right? The the unknown unknowns, mm-hmm. and and that's to me that's what 
you know, so, someone gave me some advice like the the regret would regret minimization strategy. Like mm-hmm. if you're making if you're making a, a decision like which one in 20 years will you, will you regret the least? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's there's an aspect to that, especially when you consider these unknown unknowns, and and that's just like there's so much there's so much about the world we we can't control. Sorry, I have the window open so the garbage truck songs. Yeah, I know. I was today. like, you were talking about missed opportunities, and I, I worry you're <laughs> going to miss the opportunity to get your garbage out. But um, I, I, it's interesting, like, uh, like the way you're describing it. Like, my natural reaction is to go back to the research and pick up one of these things, pick up one of the pieces of research, one of the theories, and and apply it. And the one that's actually coming to mind is the work by Rita McGrath. Uh, on strategy. And she talks about the strategy process effectively being a spectrum of of very deliberate um, where you know the, the pathway to success. And if you're not extremely focused on it, then your ability to execute and be successful is limited. But at the other end of the spectrum, you have what's called an emergent strategy, which is you don't know what the pathway to success is. And you need to open the aperture up and, and uh, be open to unexpected opportunities that come along. And, and when you're getting people's advice in that it's more framed around telling you what to do, inadvertently what they're doing is they might be putting you in a deliberate state um, when actually uh, you need to be in a more emergent state. You need to figure out, um, you need to figure out like, is, is, are these things that I enjoy doing? Uh, uh, like, is this something? And 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 when you're in that emergent state, there are like like it's it's almost lean startup type uh, stuff. You like want to be testing quickly, iterating, being very open to possibilities, seeing what works, what doesn't. And then as as you figure out what things do work, then you become uh, you become more deliberate. And and so we go through a range of different theories like this in the book. So um, the the one that I'm the two that I mentioned earlier that. I really um, have really helped change the way that I think about things. The first was around motivation. Um, the uh, the the work that we pull on is um, by uh, Frederick Hertzberg. It's one of HBR's most popular articles called "One More Time: How Do You Motivate Employees?" Now, the way I used to think about things was um, I used to think about motivation being one continuous spectrum of like highly motivated to extremely unmotivated. And it turns out that that's not really the way our minds work at all. Um, we have um, like we have two independent spectrums uh, working like that they're, they're not they're not actually on they're not working at this they're working at the same time but they're not working based on the same factors they're entirely independent so on one hand Hertzberg talked about hygiene factors and these tend to be extrinsic in nature and if you have if, if you lack these you experience an absence of uh, you, you experience dissatisfaction so if you're not paid enough if you have poor working conditions, um, if you if you don't work at a prestigious firm, you experience this sense of dissatisfaction. But you satisfy these. You um, you like you're paid lots. Like you work at a super prestigious firm, so on and so forth. It's not that you suddenly f- feel satisfied. It's there's an absence of dissatisfaction. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have what are called motivators, and these are more intrinsic in nature. And uh, if you don't have these, you don't feel dissatisfied. There's just an absence of satisfaction. Whereas when you do have them, 
you feel satisfied. And these are things like the ability to shoulder responsibility, um, learning, um, uh, believing in what you do. And so this notion that these two sets are not on the same spectrum, but they're working inter- independently at the same time really changed the way that I thought about how to approach jobs that I want. Like, I mean, everyone talks about money not being super important. And I probably knew how to say those words, but I didn't believe them until I saw this research and realized, actually, you make an, you make a certain amount of money and beyond a certain amount, actually adding more money doesn't make you more happy with your job. It's just It's just going to result in an absence of dissatisfaction. It also helped me explain anomalous um, anomalous situations like how people seem to love and hate their jobs at the same time. You know, you hear teachers don't get paid very much but really believe in what they do or folks in the military who, um, again, really believe in what they do, given lots of opportunities to shoulder responsibility but really dangerous working conditions don't get paid very much. Like how, how do you resolve that tension between them lo- loving and hating what they do all at the same time? And this research helped me understand that. So are you aware that I took the garbage out? Yeah, I am. I just decided I'd try and keep talking in your absence. <laughs> I was going to say, because e- either that was the most epic like ep- a monologue ever, or uh, or well, I guess epic monopsy. No, you already had the most epic monopsy. Is it monopsy? It, Is that the word? Uh, it wasn't. It, it was. It, it wasn't a soliloquy. This soliloquy. Was, that's the word. What is a monopsy? A oh, monopsy is when there's only one person you can sell to. It's the opposite of a monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Not well. I mean, that's kind of what was happening on some level. I guess you disappeared out to get the garbage truck. No, I was uh, the garbage out. I was just talking about. Um, people are going to have their minds blown if we leave this in. Like we can <laughs> we can rant by ourselves with no one on the other line. I was just talking about. Yeah, it's like, like yeah, like you thought our monologue was bad. Wait till we do it on purpose. <laughs> I was just talking about like a little bit of the research out of the book and. That might be the way that our minds work. Not everyone recognizes that's the way our minds work, right? So, so you you get two jobs, and one pays two hundred thousand dollars. Just, just I'm picking a number out of the air, and another pays a hundred thousand dollars. It's like we're naturally going to bias ourselves towards the things that we can easily measure, right? It's like the quantitative stuff. It's like, oh, well, this job must be worth twice as much as society values it twice as much as that job. So of course, I'm going to take the one with twice as much. But it's actually the things that are and people default to that so easily. No, and this is why, like, everyone can get on their high horse and, like, um, say, oh, why can't more companies be like Apple, for example, right? And, like, oh, look at this company featuring feeds and speeds, right? That's exactly you're, what you're saying is that's exactly what people do to their own life, mm-hmm. right? They, they, they totally do. Like, when you choose a job because of the salary or the job title, you're prioritizing feeds and speeds, mm. Right. It, it, which is, it, but when you, when you think about things like, what's the commute like? Uh, what are my coworkers like? Like, what, what, what you know, is this going to be personally fulfilling to me? Mm. That's where you get into the, oh, I might choose the $100,000 job, even though it doesn't make sense and it's hard to explain to people. And people will say that I'm buying into a cult or something. Like, does this criticism sound familiar? It's, it's the sort of criticism that, you know, I mean, much less so today, but especially 10 years ago, people would levy against like a, a typical Apple buyer. It's like, why are you spending so much on a computer? It does the exact same thing it does. <laughs> And, and it, it, it's so fascinating when you put it that way, because 
how easily we critique and criticize this attitude elsewhere without even realizing that we do the exact same thing when it actually matters to us. And, and when you think about that, I think it gives you a lot more humility and grace to think about business and to analyze companies and think about managerial decisions, right? Because if you if you don't actually practice it in the parts of your life where you actually do get that chance to choose, why do you think that if you were the manager of a company, you would actually make better decisions than they do? It's a really good point. It's a really good point, and and it, you come you come back to that feeds and speeds thing. If you if you believe that the theory is nested, or at least the way of thinking about it is nested, you need to satisfy that, and then you need to optimize for all the other things. Well, like it, it goes back to it's what we talked about before about kind of the, the connect connectivity and network stuff, right? This idea of the importance of intrinsic motivation and the difficulty of properly valuing it and prioritizing it. Uh, it matters at the company level, but you can go down. It also matters on the group level. It matters on the on the team level. It matters on the individual level. And and like oh, you know, in some respects, life is very complicated. In other respects, it, it, it's it's very simple. In that there's there's almost like these 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 values or concepts that matter. And if you can identify and understand that, and identify and understand for you yourself what matters. Right. And and once you do this, once you focus on yourself and you understand, like you once you really understand what matters to you, what are your priorities, what like what is most important, then decisions actually become easy. They're still wrenching, mm. but they're easy. And the reason they're easy is because you get a decision, should I take job A, job B, or should I apply here or should mm. I wait? And you can and you can walk through, you can do trade-offs. Like this is again, like we do, we talk about this a ton on, on this on this podcast is what are the trade-offs involved? And people just want to make a decision. But if you step back and you walk through and say, What are the trade-offs? Like mm. this means this, or this means this, and it becomes very clear that there's a choice. And if one and so one, if you know there's a choice, and two, you know your priorities. Once you know those two things, the actual like it's obvious what you should do. Again, easy is not the right word. It can still be very hard and gut wrenching to make a decision that like you know, but you can know that it's the right decision. And and the other thing is, I talk about regret minimization. This is true regret minimization because whenever you make a choice, like there's tons of uncertainty, right? You're 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 making decisions based on all the information you have available and probabilities and what will probably happen. And what what's so what's comforting about this process though is it is when five years down the road or six months on the road it doesn't work out as long as you went through this process you know exactly why it didn't work out and that's like yeah. very comforting in a way it's like we don't I I knew what I knew I made the choice based on these odds dice didn't roll my way because I can't control the world that's okay like and, and whereas if you make a choice and it doesn't work out and you don't even know why you chose it you chose it because like you felt a lot of pressure to go in a certain direction. Like then you're even more lost and buried than you were to start out with. I agree. I I would say it's not always though that the dice didn't roll out. It may be also that you didn't understand something about yourself. Right. And so the, the, I I love the way you describe it, but I, I might reframe it just a little bit in that what you actually, the best way to make a decision is to figure out your priorities before you make the decision. And then when the decision comes along, you're right. It's it's not easy, but at least it's simple. No, that's because, a, no, that's exactly it. I almost put it three steps. One, know your priorities before you have to make a decision, and then right. two, make decisions before you have to. Right. right? Like, don't apply for a job if you're not sure you would be willing to take the job. 
Like people would do this all the time. Like they go through this whole process. They get a job offer. Like, oh, should I take it? It's like, why did you like, don't even apply unless you've already thought through whether it's a job you'd be willing to take. I mean, it, like be explicit about your decisions. Right. And then it, it sometimes it can be the dice didn't work out, that the, the dice didn't roll your way. Or sometimes it can be you actually learn something about yourself and you need to go back and rearrange your priorities. But, but. That's actually that's not a that's not a loss. That's a valuable thing. And then the next time you have to make a decision, your 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 decision making criteria are that much more refined. Right. No. Exactly. Because if if you're if you're as clear as you can be about why you made a decision, it becomes much easier to understand why a decision went wrong. Right. We, we've talked about this in context of companies. Like it's mm. super dangerous to not know why you succeed. It's super dangerous to not know why you failed. But the easiest way to not know why you succeeded or why you failed is to not know why you made a choice in the first place. And 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 if you start out being explicit and being deliberate and being thoughtful and like understanding the trade offs, understanding your priorities, then it it becomes it becomes like a self a self correcting a, 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 like a positive mechanism, like a feedback loop, right? Mm. Because you're clear. And then you realize, oh, actually, I wasn't clear on this one thing. Well, next time you are clearer, and then you're going to make a better decision, and, and and you're going to learn better, and it's going to feed back on itself, and and that's the sort of person, like, and you could see, like, that's the sort of person that is going to be successful, that's going to be the CEO, that's going to be the 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 leader. It's it's a clarity of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's um. I mean, I, I guess we come at this both with the same biases because we both come with a business background. But there is so much in the the research and the way in which you approach the understanding of companies and what you learn in in seeing how they work that I find so helpful in in terms of actually picking those lenses up and applying them on a personal level to try and replicate it like the priorities thing it's the same in a business like you get the priorities set the decisions make themselves and and it works the same way on the post on our personal lives and like that way of thinking about it is the basis of like how we approach the book and it, it's the basis on which i try and make decisions as well and i it's again it's like when you get advice like i like it as a as a form of advice because it's not telling you what to do it's instead teaching you how to think yeah and, and i mean just to bring it full circle i mean like I, I have, at least I hope this isn't you know of certain sense of humility about about articulating this. Be, you know that what we talked about at the beginning, like how it some people like there's folks that don't even aren't even aware of of like they're just their background in life is just so much different that to give them advice is is almost to mock because you just don't even know the circumstances or the background right. from which they're coming and. And that's why I think it is really important, though, even if you're like we're pushing, oh, think clearly, understand, know the trade-offs, just be aware there are other things and other trade-offs that you're making that you have no idea you're making and that you're utterly oblivious to. And that's kind of where I think where the feedback loop fits in. And that's the things we were talking about, right? You you realize there's something you didn't understand about yourself. And often that's a thing that you you, you just, you thought you knew it all and actually there's a this massive big chunk that you didn't know anything about at all. Yeah, I mean, right. I, I, I actually thought you were going in a slightly different direction in that it's it's easy for us to talk about this and there are a whole bunch of folks out there for whom it's just 
like that that love the luxury of being able to have clarity of thought when really all they're focused on is is where to where their next meal is coming from and when you're or not just situation. that not just that but it's like you know like I'm maybe someone's listening to us and they're sitting in their car driving home and like they woke up with like a kid would have a fever and one would have to get to school and they're making lunch and getting out the door and then something happened at work and they're busy it's like where like where do you even get the time to to think to to be clear and and yeah it's it, it, it's a good it's a good question and like i I, I don't know. I, and I, but at least I appreciate that, that it's tough. And like, we're all just kind of, I don't know. We're all just doing the, we're all just doing the best we can. We're all just doing the best we can. And um, I don't know. It, it, there's, there's some aspect though, like about just being honest. I, I mean, I, I left school and I came to Taiwan and, you know, I was applying to business school and I, I wrote about in my year essays, oh, I have all this great international experience. I'll bring us, you know, all this, all this sort of like positive aspects of having lived abroad for six, for six years. And I was rejected to like the, all the schools that I originally applied to. And I was in the second round. And I was writing this essay and for for Kellogg and um and finally, I was like like my essay sucked. I just completely rewrote this one at the last minute and uh you know kind of at the depths of like nothing left, just kind of right right from the gut. And basically, what I ended up writing was you know, yeah, I've said all this great stuff about having six years, but if I'm honest, like I haven't accomplished anything in my life. Like I'm 28 years old and I've been an English teacher and I have no relevant experience. And most business schools don't want to hire me because they don't think anyone will hire me or don't want to, don't want to admit me because they don't think anyone will hire me and they'll hurt their statistics. Um, yeah, that's, 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 that's where I'm at. And like, well, at least I'm aware of it now and I'm trying to fix it and rectify it. And for me, like a business school is like the surest, fastest route to like legitimacy in the job market. Like we were all on the same page and it was like, just like, I, but I had to be honest about it. I had to accept Mm. it and I had to not just accept it in, in my essay, but I had to accept it with myself. Like I, 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 by all objective merits was not just a failure, but relative to the privilege that I had both in my upbringing, my background and just like my intellectual capability, I was waste. I was a waste. Like I I was doing far, I was doing nothing for the world. I was doing nothing for myself. And, and, and it wasn't until I came to grips with that and accepted that, that like, that's when things started to change. It is so hard to, achieve that level of honesty with yourself but i i feel like (laughs) well it's like the company it's like apple 1987 about to go out of business right right it's like that like when do companies make dramatic shifts it's when they're about to go out of business because they're like you have nothing left and and probably the challenge for anyone listening to this or anyone is like how can you how can you create a way of thinking and an approach to life that you don't need to get to that level to to recognize when you need to change. Yeah. I've, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. I mean, I, I, the last one of the, one of the other ways in which you think about this is culture and like cultures form and the, the process by which they form is, is shared ways of problem solving. And as the, as you, as as the, the the problem solving doesn't have to be perfect, it just has to be good enough. 
the first time people see the problem, they're like, how do we do this? And then the next time they see the problem, if it worked well enough, it gets locked. And eventually it gets to the point where people see the problem and they don't even ask, you know, how do we do this? It's just the way things are done. And the difficulty with which it takes to break that is so, it's it's so hard to break it. And one of the few things that will break it is a crisis. And it, it sounds like, it sounds like that's on a personal level what you went through. And it sounds like at a corporate level, that's that's what Apple went through. It just becomes so difficult to to fundamentally challenge all those assumptions because it's inertia carrying you along that path is so strong. Yep. Well, we successfully talked about Apple, so I think we can call it a day. Yeah. I that, that was that was like a really personal and powerful story. Thank you for sharing it. Um well, you're welcome. Um, yeah. Well, we went a little long. Um, unfortunately, I keep. I really want to keep it to an hour, uh, but we're doing a bad job of that. But um, I, something a little different. I hope people found it interesting. Um, I don't know if we answered. If should you get an MBA? Probably the answer is it depends. Um, but uh, but of course it depends. That's exactly the right answer. If you gave a yes or no answer, <laughs> Ben, I'd need to reach down the line and slap you because that's exactly what we said we wouldn't do. Right, and like it's almost like. If you're, so here's a different question: Would you do it again? Oh, of course. I mean, it, it was like I got it out of it exactly what I wanted. Like for me, it was very transactional. Like I got, I got this stamp of approval. Like I don't get, I don't get, I, I, I like, I mean, maybe Apple if I somehow meet the right person, but realistically, I don't even get an interview without that and without in. I mean, let's be honest, the tech companies didn't cover themselves in glory. Like every single one rejected me the first year. And then except for Apple. And then once I had Apple resume, then everyone gave me an interview like the, the second year. Um, but like, and that got me experience. And, and now I'm here. But although my wife does joke like, well, you know, you're, you're just a blogger. <laughs> like we could have saved a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, but, uh, but I mean, the reality is, is I, I've benefited more than almost any of my classmates I would argue, um, both in the, it got me into the industry. Um, I got so much out of working in companies, I think particularly Microsoft, and, and just understanding the way a big company works and the impact of culture and all this sort of stuff that we've talked about and just how powerful it is. And uh, um, But then also just a lot of the, the, just the theoretical stuff. I didn't really know anything about business. Um, I, I had... I, I'd like to think I had a good sense of things and like things, ideas of like things like comparative advantage. Like I've always thought in terms of comparative advantage, which I think is, is actually pretty rare. Um, but that has always like, that's just the way I think. And it kind of like game theory and like thinking systematically. So I, I had kind of the raw stuff, but the actual, like to actually apply it and have the language and words to use it. I got all that from business school. And so, um, the entire niche that Stratechery fills being about the business of technology uh, and the culture and those sort of things all flowed from that. So I got tremendous benefit. I almost, I tend to think, again, you don't want to make a hard, fast rule, but it's almost because I was such a non-traditional student with such a non-traditional background that meant an MBA was the most beneficial for me. Whereas the more traditional student and the easier it would have been for me and the easier it would have been to get a job also probably the less value I would have gotten. See, it's funny you say that because I did an undergrad in business, economics, accounting, and information systems. Overachiever, I, geez. Yeah, I, so it was two degrees. And I, 
I did. I came out of a management consulting firm. So, like in terms of you were, you were, they they call them frequent flyers. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I personally found it completely transformative. Um, uh, but I, I guess not for learning the lessons. I, I don't know. Maybe I went in there looking to looking to understand myself better, and that's exactly what happened as a result. Um, it was it was a transformative two years, but it it wasn't. It was it was. Though it would have been difficult to crack tech from uh, management consulting in Australia. So from the career perspective, that's definitely true. I just learned, I learned and developed so much in those two years. It was, I, I loved it. Yeah, I mean, like anything, it depends. It depends on the person. I think, um, yeah, just for, from a purely professional aspect, I, I would say if you if you can get the job or position or into the industry you want to without doing it, like you should get the job, right? I mean, there's so much you learn from experience and there's so much, uh, it's not just the money you spend on school. It's all the foregone income. And like, like, so there's, I mean, you probably make it back in the long run. I mean, you make a pretty good salary generally coming out of an MBA school. Um, but, uh, I mean, in general, but I think, I I think it's very useful for, for a career switcher. What I think is not useful and is thinking that it makes you special in any way whatsoever. Um, like all it is, is it's a degree and you were fortunate enough that you could spend a lot of money to not work for two years. Um, and that doesn't make you special. Like it makes you special in a non-special way in a, like you didn't have to earn it sort of way. And, And like, and, and honestly, like I understand, I get frustrated, but I understand why so many people in technology have such a bad impression of MBAs, uh, because quite frankly, I have a bad impression of MBAs. I knew plenty of those exact type of people that people complain about. And they were definitely uh, more prevalent at business school than they were anywhere else in the world. Um, Stop generalizing. <laughs> so well, this is from stereotypes, stereotypes, are, <laughs> stereotypes are always to some extent based in reality, right? And yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. You're right. You're right. And and like, yes, it's just ironic. We're two MBAs. Hopefully changing people's opinion in the tech world one <laughs> podcast at a time. <laughs> it's our new motto. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we should wrap this up for real. Uh, we're now at, in uh, almost an hour and a half. So uh, yeah. Uh, we'll Thank see. you for your forbearance, everybody. Yeah, we'll see if we can cut a little bit. Maybe your monologue. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you later. See you, Ben. Bye.